Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 207, Donitz Has His Day. Last time, we saw how the Polish cryptographers had accidentally received a copy of an Enigma machine, and they used those few precious hours they had to glean as much information as possible. They would go on to share this with the British and the French, but only due to mistrust one month before the war started. Still, the men and women at Bletchley Park got to work, and they learned much. Building onto this information, Alan Turing and Gordon Watchman from Hut 6 had built their first bomb, a more powerful version of the Polish bomb that would simulate the calculations of 30 Enigma machines. Fine enough, but it was still several kilometers away. How to get it to Bletchley without anyone the wiser? Given the importance of victory, that's what the machine was dubbed, the security detail around it on its journey would be enormous, and that would attract unwanted attention, all the way to Bletchley, another undesirable. But then someone realized, no one's going to know what this monstrosity is. It's not like they're going to take a look at it on the back of a lorry and say, hey, there's victory, our Enigma busting machine. They got the idea from the Polish, you know. Of course not. So the one-ton paperweight was put on the back of a truck, not covered in any special way, and simply driven to Bletchley, arriving there at Hut 1 on March 18, 1940, just days before Norway was invaded, soon to be Hitler's latest conquest. Victory was switched on, but so many problems remained. Fact was, those at Bletchley Park who had worked with Turing still had no way of passing the bigrams and trigrams of the German Navy. You see, back in 1937, the Kriegsmarine had put a little, or not so little, spin on their version of Enigma. Using an established code book, or K book, they selected a trigram, or three letters, from it and ciphered it to get the message settings. Straightforward enough. But then they turned or wrapped that trigram into a bigram, or two letters. This would be used as the header for the message. But one still needed the bigram cleared up before getting to the trigram and then to the actual message itself. This extra step, simple in design but powerful in its addition, had thrown the Polish cryptographers off, which forced them out of desperation to contact the two Western European countries. The good news was that a copy of the K-Book had been found by the British in early 1940, but without the annual bigram tables, the first layer of defense was damn near impossible to get around where the naval enigma was concerned. Meanwhile, in Germany, Karl Donitz, who had been a prisoner of war during the Great War, was an intimidating man. His intimidation came from his beyond-all-measure confidence in himself. Even Hitler told his cronies that he did not like being in the same room as Donitz. Why? Because he made him uncomfortable. Unfortunately for the future allies, Donitz was an intelligent, confident submariner who was put in charge of the U-boats in the autumn of 1935, and he had just worked out, or rather put the finishing touches on his strategy should war come again to Europe and the various waterways around it. First, he knew that if war came, London would bring back the convoy system, 
that worked so well during the First War. It had not been implemented until 1917, but when it was, the Central Powers were at a loss. Donitz not only had to work out a way to counter the convoy system, but also he had to deal with the fact that U-boats were slower when they dove, and they would have to dive when attacked. The counter to all this was the wolf pack system. When a lone U-boat came upon a convoy, instead of attacking it, it would simply follow and send out a report for other subs to converge. Of course, this meant communicating while at sea, but signals had improved much since 1918. And now that Donitz was the U-boat commander, he promised himself to work on his Wolfpack system until it was perfect. But he certainly had his challenges in front of him. The good news was that the new U-boats, the type IXB that were coming out, had better communications and a radius of 10,000 miles before needing to be refueled. But the Brits did not have to break their messages. They could simply use the direction these scrambled radio signals were coming from to hone in on the sending sub. For now, that was the British concern, to know the location of these convoy killers. To combat this, Donitz put out the order that only vital messages were to be sent, like reporting in on a convoy or the discovery of a new batch of mines, and lastly, of course, the weather, if it turned nasty. Now, this was still giving away the game, so Donitz next ordered that all messages were to be as brief as possible, but again, that would mean a signal was being sent out. So the Kriegsmarine, when war broke out, started working on a short codebook so that vital messages could be compressed before being sent out. Further, when war did come to Europe, the Nazi state had two modern battlecruisers, three pocket battleships, five cruisers, and 17 destroyers. These were not going to challenge the British Royal Navy by themselves. However, by the fall of 1939, Donitz had 56 U-boats at his disposal. This branch, Donitz branch, would be the one that would bring their enemies low. Hitler, not all that interested in matters naval, gave Donitz a free hand. But now, it's time for a bit of irony. As Poland was being gobbled up by the Germans and the Russians, there were some in the British Royal Navy that were experiencing a tingling, sensation in the back of their head. Something wasn't right. By this time, Lord Louis Mountbatten, having just finished his time as a signals specialist in the Mediterranean fleet, suggested to the Admiralty that they might want to take a look at the American Telex-style coding machines on their warships. He didn't or could not even suggest that their code had been pierced by the Germans. They had but it was the best he could do at the moment, as the Admiralty was not even ready to hear this. No surprise, the men of the Admiralty were aghast. Surely Mountbatten wasn't suggesting that their ASDIC system, an early form of sonar, a system that the British were vital in inventing, wasn't good enough to track down subs. That alone would render the U-boats practically useless. The truth was, the Americans' coding machines were easier to work with. In fact, the RAF was already implementing them. And though the Royal Navy had been given five copies, they were just sitting there, collecting dust. 
The point that Lord Mountbatten was trying to make was, now that war was on, the Germans, if and when they needed to change their codes and settings, could do so relatively easy. Just send out the information through Enigma, which is why they could change them once a month, and that frustrated those at Bletchley. Whereas the Royal Navy would have to print out a new code book, make many copies, give those copies to people they hoped they could trust, and then they, in their turn, would have to travel all over the world to hand these out. The exact opposite of efficient. But it was because the process of updating codes was so burdensome that many in the Royal Navy did not want to discuss this proposal. No, the Admiralty were not worried about U-boats, as Dick was the correct and best remedy for them. At the end of the first week of war, the first Allied convoy went out, and the Admiralty at the time was more concerned about enemy surface ships than U-boats. They would learn in time. Still, there had been a plan in place to bomb the German naval base at Wilhelmshaven on Germany's northwest coast in the time of war, but the weather made this initial bomb run a limited success. But it would be the second week of war that showed the stodgy admiralty where the greatest threat would come from, not on the high seas, but below them. As their faith in the Aztec system was complete, the Admiralty was sending out hunter-killer groups formed around the fleet aircraft carriers. Their jobs were, as the title suggests, hunt down and kill U-boats when not escorting convoys. But even by September 15th, just two weeks into the war, German U-boats were having success in an area of water the British called the Western Approaches. Basically, the Western Approaches is the body of water just west of Ireland and Great Britain, and it was here that the U-boats were sent to choke off supplies from reaching the home island. And on September 15th, a contact was made about 700 kilometers or 434 miles due west of Plymouth in southwestern Britain. Sending out the carrier Courageous with a destroyer escort, this hunter-killer group was sent out to that part of the approaches. When the Courageous was launched back in 1917, she had been a battle cruiser, but given the changing times and developments of airplanes, she was converted to a carrier in May 1928. A hangar and flight deck were added. The two twin 15-inch guns were replaced with 4.7-inch AA guns. As her light armament was not augmented, it would be up to her escorts to keep the courageous afloat. Back to the contact of September 15th, when Donitz was told of the convoy, he ordered all his U-boats in the western approaches to converge. In part U-29, commanded by Otto Schuhart, and U-boat 53, led by Ernst Gunther Heinke, responded. As the U-boats were coming in from different directions, U-53 found the 5,000-ton British freighter Kafiristan two days later on September 17th. Wasting no time, machine gun fire and torpedoes were thrown at the bigger vessel. At 3.42 p.m. that day, the first torpedo was launched, yet it missed. Now alerted, the freighter captain, Master John Busby, had the unescorted vessel alter course. But U-53 stayed close, and at 3.55 p.m., another torpedo was launched and struck true. 
but it would be the gunfire at 4.14 p.m. that doomed the Kafiristan. Besides the ship itself, 8,872 tons of sugar were now lost, along with six crewmen. 29 others of the freighter survived and later were picked up by an American merchant, American farmer. The survivors were taken to New York City. When the attack started, the Courageous close by sent two of her four destroyer escorts to the scene, along with launched swordfish biplanes to seek out the sub. Meanwhile, to the east of the sinking, U-29 was still looking for its target. Instead, Schuhart found a swordfish biplane overhead. Clearly, as they were some 300 miles from land, this plane had to have come from a carrier. The subcrew got excited. Extra eyes were put on the task of searching the horizon, and within a short time, a puff of smoke was spotted at 6 p.m. Closing in, the carrier HMS Courageous was spotted. Schuhart had the crew go to battle stations. Tonight was going to be their night. But Schuhart's enthusiasm was slightly diminished when he spotted a plane overhead, not to mention the two remaining escort destroyers. To attack now was to die, either from a surface ship or from the air, but it would still be there last moment on Earth. Instead, Schuhart went with his training and wrote the following in his logbook. At the time, it looked like a hopeless operation. Because of the aircraft, I could not surface, and my underwater speed was less than 8 knots, while the carrier could do 26. But we were told during our training to always stay close, and that is exactly what I did, following him submerged. Thus, U-29 followed the carrier and her two escorts, but as they were going faster, the carrier again could do 26 knots, but the submerged sub could only do 8, so the escort group began to pull away, but not enough. Suddenly, the carrier and her escorts slowed and turned at 7.30 p.m. U-29 had been following for an hour and a half, and the crew had started to get nervous, thinking that they might lose this big prize. But again, the Courageous had just turned into the wind, which put her right in front of the approaching sub, still submerged. When U-29 was just under 3,000 yards away, Schuhart sent off three torpedoes. Watching the torpedoes come ever closer to the target, Schuhart ordered his sub down deep as he knew what would follow, a massive depth charge attack. Soon, U-29 was some 180 feet below the waves, lower than she had ever gone before. But Schuhart expected the surface ships to release all hell after that carrier was struck. The seconds went by and the sub creaked due to the pressure. Suddenly, two massive explosions could be heard and felt. In fact, the sub shook so violently that some of the crew believed the depth charge attack had already started. Then the crew cheered, but went quiet, as it was clear that one of the destroyers had detected them. Then things got worse as the second destroyer soon joined in. The attack from above went on for hours. The men below were sure that each moment would be their last. But at 11.40 p.m., 
all went quiet. Simply, the destroyers above had run through their depth charge supply. Shuhart slowly eased his boat away. Later, when he surfaced, he sent the following message to Donitz. Courageous destroyed U-29 homebound. As the stricken carrier had two giant holes in her, she would only stay above the surface for another 15 minutes, which meant 519 people out of the 1,260 on board would not survive this night. Nearby, a Dutch passenger liner, Vindam, watched as the carrier went down with her two squadrons of fairy swordfish, some 48 planes. The Dutch vessel and a British freighter, the Collingsworth, were soon on the scene, plucking survivors from the waters below. By the next morning, September 18th, the news had traveled the world. The Courageous was the first British warship sunk in the war, and the Admiralty recalled the three other carriers operating in the western approaches. Which is exactly what Donitz had been hoping for. Now, there was one less layer of protection for the convoys. Meanwhile, in Berlin, though Donitz was ecstatic like his men, Hitler was unmoved. At this point, late September 1939, he was still hoping to come to some agreement with the British. And yes, sinking one of their capital ships would not make them want to talk of a settlement. But in case they did not, the war had to go on. 